0: Hey, good morning, Redemption. It's good to see you guys, be with you all. Um, if it's your first time here, uh, my name is Ricardo Stewart, and I'm one of the pastors here. I want to personally welcome you to Redemption Tempe. Uh, just a little bit about Redemption, we are one church, or are multiple congregations. Uh, we meet in various places, but this is where we meet here for Redemption Tempe. Uh, if you want to learn more about who we are, best thing you could do is take that information card in the seat in front of you fill out your name and your email address, any questions that you have regarding Tempe uh, or any questions you have regarding how you get connected, write that down. Um, I want to say something about that. I say that every week and, um, and then people will catch me and say, I got a question for you. Hey, I don't really know a whole lot that happens here. Uh, if you put it on the, uh, that card, Jason will be able to answer uh, anything you have. If you want to ever know anything that happens at this church, Jason Raber is the guy. And most of you go, who's Jason Raber? Exactly, right? So, find them on the email and he'll be able to get that to you uh, i have a few announcements um, one before we get announcements i just want to recap last week uh some of you guys were not here and it was a really really fun day for us as a church uh, a couple of things one we announced that we officially closed on the purchase of this property and so we own this property and so we celebrated that last week uh yeah thanks um, we, we did say there's going to be some so what's to that, and so for the next six months, we're going to take some time to really look at the, the campus and see what we need to fix, what needs to be renovated, and how we can use it uh, to glorify God's name. So not just how we as a church can use it, but how other ministries, schools, and organizations are able to uh, use the facilities of which we have here. Um, last week also, um, even more exciting than, than, um, than, than property, is that we had 40 people, around 40 people that were baptized last week in all three services, so that in itself was worthy of God praise. And we're going to follow up with all of you who were baptized. If you put your email address down that we got your information. If you didn't and you said, oh, I forgot to write that down, let us know. We have some things for you, a gift for you, as well as um, trying to get you connected into discipleship because that is important. So I wanted to make sure just to recap that because that was, that's important. Those are important things. Uh, a couple announcements I have um, just for you to put on your calendar. We will be having baby dedications uh, on September 9th. And so mark that September 9th, we will have baby dedications. Um, so if you have not baby dedic- de- dedicated your babies, uh, feel free to sign up for that. Again, two ways you can, uh, three ways you can do that. You can stop at the Connect Us. Um, you could take an information card and write your name and email address and just put, I'm going to dedicate my baby. Or you can go to the Facebook page at Redemption Tempe, and then you can be able to register on there uh, for, for baby dedications. And so we're excited about that. Uh, the next thing is we are going to uh, we're gonna start First Wednesdays again in September. And so First Wednesdays, is we get together, the first Wednesday of the month, and we have an opportunity to talk about, culture and theology. And so given that it's an election year, we wanted to talk about politics. And so we thought long about this. We were going to do September on immigration, but we're going to push that back to October because we're really excited about the, the man in whom we got to bring in. Um, I personally did not feel um, comfortable bringing someone in who was going to be uh, more one-sided, whether it be um, politically left or right, but someone who had an understanding of what does it mean as a Christian to engage in politics and civic life. And so there's a a guy by the name of Jim Skillen or James Skillen, um, he is from Washington, D.C., and he heads up a lot of organizations. And... Um just teaching and shaping the, the minds of people. And so he's a well-sought guy. Uh, through the relationships we have in Redemption, mainly Tyler Johnson, we were able to get him. So we will bring him out for that first Wednesday. Chances are we're going to open it up to the other congregations because, uh, because it's, it's going to be a great night. So we're, we plan on packing the house for that. Um, so we'll make sure that you guys get in first. We don't know how yet, but somehow we'll, we'll do some handshake or something like, Nah, you're not in. <laughs> so we'll figure that out. So that's going to be the first Wednesday of September. So hold those. Um, One more announcement that I just would not do a good job at announcing, so I'm gonna bring Jim Mullins up to have this announcement. You guys join me in welcoming Jim as he comes on stage.
1: Okay, well this is a big announcement. We have a a unique opportunity. Right now, in places like Saudi Arabia, China, and all all kinds of other countries, people are packing up their bags, and they're getting ready to move to to Arizona to attend Arizona State University. They're coming here for an education at this great university that's nearby. But as we read Acts 17, we realize that God determines when and where people will live so that they could come to know him. So we have an opportunity to partner with God in showing and extending the good news to the international students who are coming from all over the world to our city. So we have two ways to do it. One is called um, friendship partners. Friendship partners are basically where an international student signs up and they basically need a friend. They've come to a new country and they don't know how to do life here. So you meet with them a minimum of once or twice a month and you just take them out to eat. You explain how things work. It's very simple. And the second way is homestay. It's um, opening up your home to have an international student come live with you, they pay five hundred dollars a month to you for rent, and then they come live with you and it 's a great opportunity to serve them and to show the love of God in the face of Christ around the dinner table. My wife and i we 've hosted seven students, and we always call it um, our dinner table diplomacy uh, because we get to build relationships cross culturally uh, between our we had seven arab students so the Muslim world and whatnot, but also it's diplomacy for Jesus. You get to be an ambassador for Christ um, among the nations at the dinner table. So I will be in the back after the service um, and we'll have a sign-up sheet if you're interested or if you have questions and then come talk to me. All right, thanks a lot. You guys thank Jim.
0: Alright, if you guys have your Bibles, why don't you guys meet me in, in Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, we're going to start in verse 9. Isaiah chapter 40. We'll be there for the bulk of our time and then we'll jump later to Luke chapter 12. So Isaiah chapter 40. If you do not have a Bible, would you raise your hand please and uh, keep it raised really high uh, so one of the guys would be able to get you a copy of the, of the Bible. Just just keep them um, raised high. If you don't own one, please keep the, coffee, the copy that we give to you. Um, it's our gift to you so that you can have a copy of God's Word. As you turn there, I just want to kind of let you know where we're started. We're starting a new series called The Four Gs. Uh, the Four Gs is titled The Four Gs, after four um, attributes of God that begin with G. Um, I lost the battle in this. I did not want it to be called The Four Gs. I want it to be called It's a G Thing Baby. But um, <laughs> people, I lost, all right? So it's called The Four Gs, and um, no need to say that. Now it's a four G series, and the, essentially, it comes from a book. Um, And the book that we that we read is a book called You Can Change. And so I have it here because it's in the lobby for 10 bucks. And let me just kind of not to promote the book by any means, but um, I was asked a question by one of our members a couple of weeks ago saying, what book would you like to shape the culture of Tempe over the next year? And I thought, man, that's a that's a really interesting question. And then I begin to ask myself, what books have shaped me um, over the last six or seven years? And I start going through the names of certain books and desiring God and knowing God and and prodigal God. Every book that had God in it was uh, one that shaped me. But when I start to think about one that I use on a daily basis, like things that I gather from a book that I use honestly every day uh, would be from the book, You Can Change. The title in itself is somewhat um, misleading, I think, because as a gospel-centered church, we're, we're constantly saying, you can't change, only God can change you. But you can change, as a book, actually, about how the gospel changes you and how the character of God changes you. In chapter five in itself, the authors of this book, Tim Chester and uh, Steve Timmis, they, they talk about how we have these transforming truths about God that transform us and our nature. So the, the week one will be, God is great, so we don't have to be in control. Next week, we'll say, we'll look at God is glorious, and so we don't have to fear man. And then we'll see God is good, and so we don't have to look elsewhere. And then we'll wrap it up at week four with God is gracious, and so we don't have to prove ourselves. And so we're going to be looking at that. Um, My my hope and plan is that every one of you would buy a book. Now, that's hard because I only got 40 copies. And so... (laughs) Buy all of them, make me have to get more, and so we can keep bringing them back. Do not let money be an option. If you go back there and you say, I don't have 10 bucks, I really want this book, talk to Jason. If you don't know who Jason is, just ask somebody who Jason is, and they'll show you. He's just a really tall guy, and he would probably be looking at you saying, really? Do you not have 10 bucks? Do you have three bucks? All right, so that, that will be Jason. So again... This would be a great book to go through with the spouse, it'd be a great book to go through in your RCs, with a friend. It is a helpful book, a book that I read once a year because it's really helpful um, for all believers. And so not just those who are theologically astute and those who don't read books on theology, this book is for both. And so I really want to highlight that. And so we're going to look at today, God is great, so we don't have to be in control. So before we look at um, Isaiah 40, uh, which we're just going to walk through and point out God's attributes, I want to bow our heads and um, let's ask God by the Holy Spirit to not only shape us today, but as we begin this new series, that he would shape us, that he would be our vision over these next four weeks. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we thank you so much for the great grace in which you've given us in Christ Jesus. God, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us in ways, Father, that, um, that we can understand you and yet we understand that your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. You are clearly not us, and yet you became like us in order to draw us to yourself. God, we desperately need you in order to change. And Lord, not in the sense of change that was just behavior modification, but true spiritual change that flows out of the heart. Lord, we constantly believe lies about this world, lies about ourselves, because we ultimately believe lies about you. Your word is clear, and it says that Truth shall set us set us free, and so Father, we pray that the truth of your character, the truth of your word, would indeed set us free. God, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name, Amen. A. -A W. Tozer says this: What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Meaning, whatever you think about God, when you begin to think about God, that is the most important thing about you. Here's why: because your vertical understanding of God—who He is and what He's done and what He says will shape you horizontally. So if we have an inaccurate view or false view of God, therefore, we will have a false view of ourselves, of those around us, and of this world. And so it's it's an imperative. It's important that we understand who God is and what he's done on our behalf. And that's why we're going to be taking this time to look through the four Gs. I, I said before, this is something that I use every day. Um, when we first learned the four G's, one of the things that I, that I, would, I did was um, I learned, um, I memorized them, I put them on my mirror, I put them in my car, I put them on my phone to text me. And so every day that I pray, um, I start off with the four G's. And when I wake up, God, you were great. I don't have to be in control because I never thought that I was a control freak, never, ever. And I told my wife, I said, the reason why the, four, the first G in the four G's God is great and so on to be in control, um, you know, I don't really struggle with that. All you have to do is be married for a little bit. And then like, you know, like you start actually being yourself. Um, and, and my wife goes, really? You don't think you struggle with control? That's funny. Um, because, and she goes, you notice that every time when we're driving on the 202 to get on the 101, I'm always afraid you're not going to get the exit. And as soon as I tell you, hey, the exit's over here, you look at me and go, what? You act like I've never driven before, right? I always want to control when I'm driving. I'm like the worst person. If you're driving, I want to control you. Don't turn there. Don't turn there. I told you not to turn there. It's faster if you go this way. Uh, I, I can't help it. I, the person to the right and left of you, were are all control freaks. And it comes down because we don't believe that God is great. You see, our understanding of God shapes us. And, and in our culture, in our times, in this world, and even in this room, in, the, in, the, in these four or six walls of, the, of this room, we, we, we have an understanding of God that sometimes is false. I wrote down a few, few things. One, we have the understanding of an iPhone God or whatever your smartphone is, right? You have an iPhone God that you can pull him out whenever you want, and whatever you need, he's in your hand. Not so much that God has the world in his hand, but he's in your hand. So when you need something, you can just press a button, and there God is. He's wherever you want him to be, when you want him to be, to do exactly what you want him to do. And that's not the God of the Bible. The, the other one is the head coach God. Um, I do a, some work with football players and, um, and sports. Some of you know that. Uh, this, opportunity, this year, I'm really... The, excited. I get to be the chaplain of the football team. When you're around Christian athletes and coaches, they always refer to God as the head coach. Nothing bothers me more. He's not the head coach. Like, you know, the head coach. The head coach, who, who? Where's he at? That's not God. Because the ideal of a head coach is that he's distant and that he's powerful and he's a dictator, but he doesn't really know your name. He doesn't really know who you are. He's just running the show, but he doesn't really care about you as long as you fit in what he's doing. The, the other one is a Santa Claus God, which many of us work out of functionally. And the Santa Claus God is if you're naughty, you get nothing. If you're nice, you get everything, right? That we have the idea that God helps those who help himself, and that's not true. God helps those who can't and admit that they can't help themselves. So we have a Santa Claus God view. The other one is a stained glass God. And I know most churches don't have stained glass anymore, but that ideal is we understand God only when we're in this room, that we know how to act in this room, we know how to do things in this room. We know how to sing. We know when to stand up. We know when I say amen that you go, right? We know, we, we know how to act on Sundays. Um, there's certain clothes everywhere. I mean, one of the things I love about redemption is we don't have church clothes. Um, I grew up going to church. I've shared this before. We had church clothes, which I never liked. It was always usually nicer clothes than you normally wore. And my mom would always tell us the Bible says, come as you are. And yet, every time for Sunday, we walk out of the room, and I'd have, like, you know, some Massimo shirt on or something like that. She goes, uh-uh, you ain't going go to church looking like that. And it's like, what? And you knew how to act around church. And, and some of us are like that. We know how to act on Sundays. The other one is, another one that, that bothers me, and I know it bothers you too, is the homeboy God. You remember that Jesus is my homeboy deal? I thought, oh my gosh. And I wasn't a Christian at the time when that came out. Everybody's walking around these church, Jesus is my homeboy. And it was like this, like, Jesus walking on, you know, it was just like, who is this Jesus? Like, what we just make Jesus into whoever we think is cool. So you have shirts of Jesus riding a skateboard, you have another shirt of, of Jesus hanging out at Starbucks, and Jesus just became like this American homie, right? And it was like, and it was like, no, that's, that's not, that's not who that's not is No, I get the idea. What they're trying to communicate is his imminence—that God is close, and He does care, and He does draw near, and He did become flesh. But you lose His transcendence; that He's other. He's not our homeboy. He's, he's God. A couple more. Uh, number six here. I put the suburban God, and this is nothing against those of us who live in suburb, suburban lives. Is a suburban God is the idea that you do believe in God. And that to believe in God, there, you, you put around a, usually a gated community of what, what God is and who God is and what God can do. And the only way to get in that particular community is it's a one-size-fit-all. You think about it. Um, you, in order to get into the gate, you have to know whatever the codes, whatever the cliches are. Christians, we are very good at making lame cliches. And know what we do in the the suburban God view? We take the transcendent nature of God, and because we can't fully understand it, what we do is we truncate it into bite-sized things that we can slap on the back of our car and bumper stickers. We're notorious for it. Um, I don't know why that is. So here's my prayer for you guys and for us. Um, Take the four Gs, learn them. Do not make a bumper sticker out of them. Please. It would be so bad. If Gateway does it, whatever, right? If If we do it, it's shame on us, right? Shame on us. The last one is um, the Plato God. And Plato, not Plato, Plato, like the, like, like, Plato, right? <laughs> is that you begin to form and fashion and shape God into the way that you want him. Some of you in this room, you don't believe in God. and In essence, that's kind of your view of God. And then some of you who say you do believe in God, but you don't like certain attributes or you don't like certain things that God, God does. And you say things like, I don't believe a holy God would. I don't believe a loving God would, and you fill in the blank. And therefore, what you're saying is, ultimately, the God that I have is a God that fits in what I would like or what I think or in my mind. And so I'm shaping and fashioning this particular God. All of those views of God are not the God of the Bible. In fact, if you open up your Bibles with me and turn to Isaiah 40, we begin to see this God. And as we begin to see that God is great, that we don't have to be in control, what we understand about the nature of God is if you and I are going to change, if you and I are going to grow, which when I meet with people, I want to grow in my faith. I want to, I want to grow in my walk in the Lord. What, what the writers of this book You Can Change say is there, that sanctification or spiritual growth is the narrowing of the gap of our confessional faith and our functional faith. Meaning this, there is something that we confess. We confess God is great. We don't have to be in control. But what happens is what we say we believe about God and what we know about God intellectually does not always flow into our lives. So, so essentially what happens is we understand the knowledge of God. We understand what we confess. It's not in itself like a river puddling into our hearts and flowing out in our hands. And he says spiritual growth is the narrowing of that gap of what you say you believe about God and how you live it. And so we start with looking at at God is great. If you look at Psalms 40, we're just going to walk through this. Psalm 40, verse 1 starts off with this word, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Psalm Psalm 40, um, excuse me, Isaiah 40, sorry guys, if you're at Psalm 40, sorry, all right? Isaiah 40, he says, comfort, comfort. He starts off by saying, I'm going to comfort my people, and the way that he comforts his people is by showing the transcendent nature of God, that he's wholly independent and other And also his eminence, meaning he cares about the details of your life. That he's a big God, but he's not just a big God that's distant. But he's a huge God that shows up and that he's omnipresent, that he's everywhere. And we need both. We need a God that is far beyond and uh, outside of our human range. And yet we need a God who cares about the smallest things in our lives personally. And that's the God that we have of the Bible. So that we don't have to be in control. Verse 9 says this. Go on to the high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald good news, meaning God himself is good news. Lift up, fear not, says the cities of Judah. And here's what he says, behold your God. This is where your comfort will come from. Behold, look at your God. He goes forward again in verse 11 and it says, He, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. And he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with, who are, that are with young. Here, here's what we have. We have this sovereign God who does whatever he pleases. The Bible says that he's absolutely sovereign. That means there's no spare maverick molecule that is floating around of which God is not control of. The Bible in itself lets us know from creation, fall, redemption, and restoration that God allows or actively causes all things for his, our good and his glory. That everything is for his glory. No matter what happens, even the things that happen that we would look at and say, that is a disaster. God is still involved. Not that he's causing sin, but he has not removed himself. Ephesians lets us know, Ephesians verse chapter 1, verse 11, that he does all things according to his glorious grace. And yet we see this transcendent God and him saying, but I'm tender too. And I will take care of those who are weak. I will take the care of those with young. There's a picture of God saying, I- I'm just not this angry God throwing lightning bolts at people. That even though I am great, I care. So you don't have to try to take control over everything in your life. You don't have to try to take control of your money. You don't have to try to take control over your children. You don't have to try to control what people think of you. You don't have to control about what will happen in the future. God is ultimately saying, I got this. I got this. Some, some, some no, Isaiah 40 continues in verse 12, and it says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with the span and closed the dust of earth and in measure it and weighed the mountains and the scales and the hills in its balance? Ultimately, who has the hand, the whole world in his hand? This is a quote from the book, and it says this, traveling at the speed of life at 186,000 miles a second, you will encircle the earth seven times in one second and pass the moon in two seconds. At this speed, it would take you 4.3 years to reach our nearest star and 100,000 years to cross the galaxy. There are thought to be about 100 billion galaxies in the universe. It would take 2 million light years to reach the next closest galaxy and 20 million to reach the next cluster of galaxies. And you have just scratched the surface of exploring the universe. And all this was created when our God spoke it into existence. And then Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12 says, he palms it. I've been watching the Olympics a lot lately. Uh, and one of the things about that these, these incredible men and women is that they are the best at what they do. I can barely swim. And these guys are swimming with two arms at the same time. <laughs> Baller, right? Um, and, and then when you see these, these massive athletes and how good they are, how they're just in control of what they do. I, when I, every time I read this passage in Isaiah, I think about a basketball player who can dribble the ball and especially guys with huge hands that can palm it and they kind of do whatever they want. They're not even thinking about that ball and yet that ball is in their control. And just to think that every single thing in this world, not just the world in itself, but your cares, your fears, your doubts, your concerns, your children, your money, God goes, I have that in my hand. When we believe in a God like this, we can say, "Ah, Lord, we, we want you to take control. And yet our hearts know it's hard. It's hard. Isaiah continues to talk about the transcendent nature of God. Verse 13 says, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? What man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? There, there, there's a sense here of God, God saying to Isaiah, who talks to me? Like who asks me what um, what who tells me what to do? God has no rivals. So often when we grow up, we think, you know, Satan and God, they're rivals and they're duking it out. God's like, uh-uh. Nuh-uh. I run this. I know I'm speaking in code language, but he's like, I I run this. God is saying no one comes to me. No one, no one's in my car saying, hey, you should probably take a right turn here, God. That doesn't happen. He's just saying, I I'm God and I'm alone I'm God. He continues to talk about what we are. And in light of that, verse 15, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. (laughs) I love that. And then when it says the nation there, it's not just talking about people, it's talking about our gifts. It's talking about our talents. It's talking about our power. I mean, you just—if we just took everybody in this room and taught what you were good at, and what you will be good at, and what you ever been good at, and all of that, and just—that's there's a lot of good things in here. And God says, if you take that in the entire world, past, present, and future, of every single person, He goes, it's like a drop in the bucket. Like that's cute, right? He—he's he, looking at saying, I—I I, I am the sovereign King. Verse eighteen says, "To whom then would you liken God, or likeness can you compare Him? An idol." A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will, not, that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. God is just saying there's nothing that you and I can look to. There's nothing that we can compare him to. There's nothing we can build with our hands. There's nothing that we can think of in our mind that will ever be able to compare against our God. God is great. We don't have to be in control. Isaiah wraps this up. In verse 21, he says, Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like the tent to dwell in it. I, I, I love that picture again. Do you see the picture there? Is that... Is that um. Is that God comes into the bathroom and there's this curtain there and it's the world and he just goes, Done. Done. Like this, this is really easy for me. Like I'm your God. There, there, there's nothing that you can do. And then he says this in verse 25 To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power. Not one is missing. This speaks not only of his transcendence, but it speaks of his eminence. Because what God is saying here is he's looking to the people. The people who would have read this particular chapter of Isaiah would have been the exiles, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And during that time when they were able to look in the stars, he's saying, look at the sky and look at the stars. There's hundreds and hundreds of them. And he goes, I did that. And not only did I do that, he goes, I know them all by name. And if God knows the stars, But there are hundreds, and we're constantly finding new stars. We're constantly finding new things. That's why I love science. Science is an ability to be able to discover things that God goes, yeah, keep looking. Keep looking. You may not find me in the stars, but what you need to know is I created all this. And so he's saying, I know all of these stars by name. And if he knows the stars by name, don't you think that he knows us? So, So often when we think about the transcendence of God, we think that he's so big that he's not concerned about the little things that are going on with me or that he's going to forget about us. There, there, there's a sense where because he's infinite, that he's too, he's too big. And no, if you just did simple math, if you divide infinity by anything other than infinity, you still have infinity, all right? Right? All right. There's, there, there's, I was guessing myself. I was like, what, was that wrong? <laughs> <laughs> but there, there, that there's, there's more than enough of God for every single one of us. God is not over in Africa and said, I'll get back to America later. And he's not, he's not just in America. I'm over here and he said, I'll get to Mexico later. He said, God is everywhere all the time. And he's saying, look at the stars. And you know what? I know them by name. And so he knows us. He knows us intimately. Look, if you look at, read me in verse 30, it says, even youth shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, and they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Just before that, God was saying, I never sleep nor slumber. He's saying every single one of you guys, the most powerful executive here, the most powerful CEO here, the most powerful woman, the most powerful man here, guess what? You're going to sleep, and you need to sleep. God says, I don't have to. Sleep in itself is one way of God letting us know that we are not like him. And also sleep in itself is a way that we can humble ourselves before God. I remember reading in a book, uh, Humility, by C.J. Mahane, and he was saying one of the most prideful things that you can ever do is think that you can't sleep and that you don't need sleep because God is the only one who can sleep. And and I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but when I became a Christian, I began to sleep way better. And I'm not talking laziness. Some of you guys are like, oh, yeah, I'm humble then, right? (laughs) No. Is is as I used to have the thought because I didn't believe that God was is it was great I had to be everywhere And so if I were in my apartment or in my dorm and there was something going on I needed to be out there Because out of fear that I would miss something. I don't know if you guys ever had that I yeah You have it you go on Facebook at night. What's happening? What are people doing? Where they at? What are they doing? Um, you're finding things that are happening because you can't rest And when I be when I became a believer in Jesus, I began to realize in that moment. You know what? It's okay I'm going to be, people are going to do things. You know what? They're going to tell fun stories about it. And I'm not going to be there. Oh, well, it's okay. God God knows exactly what I need. God doesn't need rest, but we need rest. God doesn't need us, but we need him. God created all these things for us to enjoy, but ultimately in enjoying them, that we would see him, that we would trust him. Isaiah 40 lays out for us God's greatness. So we don't have to be in control. But the truth of the matter is, we do. We don't believe that. We want to be in control. And why don't we believe that? There's a few things I put here. First reason why we don't believe that is because at the root of all sin is that we want to be like God. In the very beginning of the stories we read in Genesis, particularly Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, we see Adam and Eve in the garden. God has created the world. God has created animals. He's let Adam name all the animals. He gives them a wife. He sings a song to his wife. They're having a great time. They're in the cool of the day. They're eating all types of delicious fruit. And God says, just don't eat of this tree or you will surely die. And then the serpent, Satan himself, slithers in. And what happened? Well, he's not slithering at that time. He's walking. walks in and looks, and looks at Eve. And he begins to do something to Eve that she's never experienced up until this moment and that we all experience. Is he begins to put doubt on about God into Eve's life. Do you know that every time we sin, every sin that we commit flows out of the fact that we believe a lie about God or a lie about his word. Every single time, every, you and I, every, we're believing something to be, to be false as truth and we're believing something that is true about God as false. And so when the serpent comes up to Eve and says, did God really say not to do this? Almost, God's got something in his back. Like he's holding out on you. And if we're being honest with ourselves and to one another, and if I'm being honest to you, which I am, just to let you know, um, there's a sense where we believe that about God. We believe that lie that somehow whatever God's ways are, whatever God is telling us to do, whatever his word says, that he somehow, he has something behind his back and he's holding out on us. That, that, That it's hard for us to believe sometimes that God really and genuinely has our best in mind. This happens with young people. Because there's certain things that, that the word of God says that they should abstain from, whatever those things may be, you know. And, 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 and the, but, they, oh, God's a killjoy. This happens with older people the older we get because we think that somehow if we did it our way and God's way, it would just be better. That somehow God forgot. Like there was something that God forgot to write. And if he would have wrote that, it would be better if we can have both. Most of us live in that, in, that, in that understanding and we do spiritual splits where we, we want to worship God and we want to do what God says, but we want to bring as much of what we want into our worship with the Lord and not understanding his lordship. And so the first is the one we don't, we, don't, we don't believe that God is great. We want to take control of this. We just, we want to be God. Those words may not come out of our mouth, but we just want to be him. We want to make the rules. We want to say what's best for us, not God. The second thing that we see is that we, we, we believe that our plan is best, um, meaning like our plan for whatever it is is best, um, and God's not. This is a story. I was re, re, uh, meeting with the kid this week, uh, one, of the, one of the students here at our, at our church, one of the ASU students, and he was telling me how frustrated he was with his dad. And I'm listening to him talk. He goes, my dad frustrates the living out of me. And I'm like, calm down. I'm in the church right? And, and, and he, I said, well, tell me what happened. He goes, well, my dad needs to finish his taxes. If my dad doesn't finish his taxes, then I can't get loans. And if I can't get loans, then I can't go back to school. And if I can't go back to school, I'm going to lose my on-campus jobs at school. And if I lose my on-campus jobs at school, I'm not going to have my apartment. I have an apartment. He goes, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to eat. So essentially, he's going to die, right? And so, and, and, and it all just trickles down. And so he's frustrated with his dad, rightfully so. Now, here, that's important. That's a good desire, To eat is a good desire, right? To want to go to school is a good desire. But why is he frustrated in that moment? In that moment, all of his trust is in his earthly father. All of his trust is in what his his dad could do or could not do. In that moment, what shows his anger, and you can think about whatever situation that you have, when you're angry, it's that something is blocking, blocking us of something that we want. Something that may be valuable, but something that's finite and we make it infinite. So we take good things and we make them the main things, whatever they may be, because we're failing to see that God is great. We're failing to see that God knows what you need, that God knows exactly what you need. And, and, and God, God's plan is always best for you. God's plan will always be right for you. But in that moment, this, this, this college kid is saying, no, 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 God doesn't understand. I need to go to college. And God did understand. And God does understand. Now you could take that scenario and you can, you can put it to yourself. For me, as I said before, my, two big, the, my anger comes out um, a lot of ways. But two specific ways is driving and talking, right? Every morning, on Monday mornings, I go to a particular coffee place that allows me to go on the freeway. And when I get on the freeway in the morning, right around 630 on the 60 freeway, that's when all the, the, the um, not good drivers are, are on the freeway. And one of the things that absolutely bothers me is when I get cut off. Or when someone won't let you in. You know when you're like about to fall off the cliff and you're like, hey, I'm trying to get over and people are just like looking at you like, whatever, right? That bothers me. And I, 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 get, I get angry in that moment. Now, I get angry in that moment because they're blocking me from something. And the worst thing about it is I cut people off all the time. The, the, the second thing is talking. Is if I'm trying to communicate a point and someone cuts me off, oh, I lose it. Like, I feel so disrespected. Really? You just cut me off, dog? What's up? right? There's a, there's a sense where I want, I, want, I want to fight in that moment, but I'm, I'm upset. I'm upset in that moment. And yet, as my wife lets me know, I cut everybody off. I will cut you off. You'll upset I'm talking, right? There's a sense where it's, it's, just, it's, it's completely hypocritical on my part, but there's a sense I want something. And, and in that moment, as small as that is, what we're saying is, God, I don't think you know I don't think your plans really, I don't think you know, God, it would be better if this person let me in. It would be better. It's a good thing. I need to get to this meeting. I need to be there on time. I need to communicate my point. I need to finish what I was saying. All good things, but we make them the main things. And what happens, what happens in us is it shows its anger. It happens even in bitterness because we, we think our plan is best. Some of us are bitter people and we can hide it. Some of the, some of the nicest people on the outside, they're smiling, they're the most bitter people. And not about their future, but what happened in their past. Many of it, it comes to our family. You know, we don't choose our parents. You know, that? We don't choose our parents, but God does. God does. And some of us, grown men and grown women still have massive issues because of something that has happened in their past by their father or their mother. And I'm not trying to anyways belittle that and say it didn't matter. But if you're standing today as a 28-year-old, as a 24-year-old, as a 90-year-old person, and you're saying, I can't get on with my life because of something that's happened in the past, what you're communicating in that moment, what you're saying is, God, you did wrong. Somehow, in the back in the past, giving me this mom, this dad, or not giving me this type of mom or this dad, it jacked up the rest of my life. Meaning, God, you don't know what's best for me. We don't believe that he's great. And we'll try to control it in different ways. We do it in relationships. Oh, we do it in relationships. We don't want to lose people's uh, friendships. We don't want to lose their love. And so we manipulate or we dominate. Here's what I mean. Manipulation, it happens all the time. And every single one of us does it. Sometimes it's very passive aggressive. Let me just give an example. An example could be a couple who gets in an argument. A wife finds her husband doing something he should not be doing. And so he confesses his sin, but the way that he confesses his sin is he tries to control his wife. I see this all the time. You, let's just say the scenario is the wife caught him looking at something he shouldn't have been looking at on the Internet. And he says, oh, yeah, that's my fault. That's my fault. But you know what? This happened to me when I was a kid. You're right. You should divorce me. You should leave me. I'm not a good guy. And so now his wife now has not the, doesn't have the freedom to be upset with him. He's controlling in that moment. And we do that all the time, guys and girls. Parents, you do it to your kids. You, you, it, it, you do it to your little kids. You do, I see grown men, men my age, who when they get around their moms, like, oh, man, you know, moms, man, you know, she's flicking them in the ear. Just control them. Hey, how come you didn't do that? Why would you marry this girl? I don't like this girl. You shouldn't marry that girl. You should marry a girl who's just like me, which you can't find a girl like me, so you shouldn't get married, right? There's a, there's, you, you, see this, you see this progression. There's a sense of control. You, you want to control. We do it. And then if it's not passive-aggressive, which we get all the time, it's, it's, it, you dominate. I, I know that in my sinful heart, when I am not in step with the gospel, my tendency will be to dominate. One of the clearest conversations I had with my wife when, um, when we first got married was I asked her, I said, how come you don't confront me on sin? And she looked at me and I said, just please. And she goes, here's the thing. You've said this before. Confront me on sin when I see it. But every single time I confront you on sin, you're a better talker than I am. You're a better communicator than I am. You eventually take it and say, yeah, I see it, and then eventually have nine things about me that's wrong. And so now I just don't even tell you. And that hurt, that hurt because it was true. And some of you have that in your personality, that you will naturally dominate people, that people are afraid of you, and you like it because it keeps them at a distance that they won't know the real you. I'm convinced that people who try to dominate things, people who manipulate, they're hiding something. You're hiding something. There's something you don't want people to know. You don't want them to get really close to you. You're afraid of something. You're afraid, you know what, the last person I let get close to me, they hurt me. I'm not, I'm not going to do that with you. And it's, it may be about that person, but ultimately it's saying, God, I, I, will, I have to control this because I don't think that you have it. Another way that we don't believe that God's plan is best for us is, is in our money. I got to go here. We, we, we are, as a people, don't want to talk about money. We don't want to really talk about how we handle our finances is because that's where we control it. We try to control our money, how we spend it, how we earn it, how we get it. We're afraid. If we're honest, we're afraid that it's going to run out. We're afraid that it just may run out. And you know what? It may. It may. But you know what? Um, checking your banking account all the time doesn't give you more money, right? So, and so in Luke chapter twelve, Luke, Luke chapter 12, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and I'm going to paraphrase here. He says, look at the lilies. Look at the ravens. They don't do anything. They don't have jobs. They're broke, and yet I love them. He goes, aren't you more um, valuable than, than birds? Aren't you more valuable than a flower? Which, just to let you know, humans are more valuable than animals. I know some of us don't get that, especially with our dogs. Listen, a human is, like a human being, is more valuable than an animal. All right, back to the message, right? So Jesus is saying that that. We're more valuable because don't you know your heavenly father knows this? And then he says, what about worrying and your anxiety? What about worrying can actually add anything to you? Have you ever worried enough and then something got done? You ever had a test the next day and you worried about it and all of a sudden the test was done and it was 100%? Right? That's what we do about our money. We're constantly checking. More money? Nope, no money. It's, you know what it's like? It's like going to the refrigerator and there's nothing you want and you're like, dang. Five minutes later, dang, Right? And you know nothing's changed. You didn't put anything in there. It's not there. And, and, and that's where we are. We do it with our money, our finances, our jobs, our friends. We we're just control freaks. And I don't know your story. I really don't. But I know that we control. Um, the last thing is we doubt God's heart for us. And this one's hard because I relate to this. Um, I believe in the absolute sovereignty of God. I know you guys know that. I believe that God is great. I believe that he's great so I don't have to be in control. I confess that. But there are certain areas in my life that if you when you press in on it, that I'm afraid of. And the reason why I know I'm afraid of them is because of what comes with my dreams. It's what I think about the most. It's what I fear most. Just think about what, what do you have in this life that if it were taken away, it would wreck you. And you'd kind of lose a self. Those things will probably be your biggest idols and blockers from ultimately letting God be in control, even though he already is. We, 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 don't, believe, we, we don't believe God's heart. On, on one side, we understand that he's powerful, that he's great, but we don't believe that he's loving and that he's caring. On the other end, we believe that he's loving, we believe that he's caring, but we don't believe that he's powerful and great. And so when it comes down to certain things, we question it. As a young kid, we, uh, and i share this with you as a young kid, we didn't have a lot of money. We didn't. Um, and we grew up in an area that did and so it was kind of that that tension of when we went to church in the inner city we were kind of the rich kids because we lived in the suburbs but then when we were in the suburbs we were kind of the poor kids because we didn't have everything and there would be moments um 3 or 4 days out of a week usually once or twice a week that my mom wouldn't get her check yet and we wouldn't have lights and so we walk around with the candle and my mom would be like don't you know god cares about us and i honestly as a kid as an 8 year old nine goes really we don't have lights he said let there be light we don't have it, right? And so there was a sense where even as a kid, I believed in God, I believed in the ideal of God and that he can do whatever he could and he could snap his finger. But in those moments, I doubted that he really cared. I doubt that he really cared because it seemed everybody else in our apartment complex had lights and we're walking around and just insecure. You you ever have those moments where when, when you're hungry or you look in the news and you see, why are these things happening? We begin to doubt the heart of God. And not just in the news, but when it becomes personal to us. When it becomes personal to you, what is that thing? When you think about that thing, you'll know. Um, we have these cliches that that don't help us. And I'm not even saying this to make fun, but the whole let go, let God, that sounds really good. But what the heck does that mean? right? Um, what's the singer, Jesus, take the will? Sorry, Carrie. I, I, you just... You just uh, I don't know what that means. Like that, like in, at the end of the day, like I get it. Like just let it go, let it go. But you know what? What if you don't want to let go? What if it's hard? So, so so for for whatever it is for you, for me, it's my kids. I get that God, I get God's heart, and I believe God's heart for my marriage. I do. I have a godly wife who loves Jesus. And I love her and she loves me. And I get this church, and even though it's hard sometimes, I get it. God, this is God's church. It's my kids, and here's 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 where I know it's real. But in the span of six months, I had three really good friends all lose kid, their kids under the age of two or three months. Went to funeral, funeral, and funeral. And one of them was my best friend who did not know God. And I'm sitting here trying to explain to him that God is transcendent and yet he's imminent. And the question that he asked me is, is okay, well, then why, you know, why does God allow these things? Can he still be trusted? And I want to say, I can go to verses. Yeah, he can be trusted. He causes all things for our good and for his glory. And he's going to work all these things out for those who believe in him. I get it. I get the confessional faith. I, I, I know that. I know it. But in that moment, for weeks and weeks, I'm waking up in the middle of the night, checking to see if my kids are breathing, making sure I'm looking at them. Because I, I know I have a plan for my kids. Sometimes I just don't believe that God does. I know that I have the the best interest for my two sons, but sometimes, sometimes I don't believe that God does because I'm failing to believe that he's great. And again, we all have that. In Luke chapter 12, here's what Jesus says. After talking about the lilies, he goes, don't you know your father loves you? Don't you know that when it comes to the transcendent nature of God and his eminence, it's all boiled down to he loves you and that he cares for you? That will things go bad? Yeah. Will kids die? Absolutely. Will you lose job? Will you lose money? Will your lights get cut off? Yeah, maybe. Jesus in John chapter 16 verse 33 says, in this world you will have tribulation. Nowhere does the Bible say, hey, everything's going to be all good. Just believe in Jesus and everything will be great. No, he says, promise you will have tribulation. But take hold, I've overcome the world. And so in Luke 12, when he's talking to his disciples in the way that I'm talking to you, he says, don't seek what you will eat. Don't care so much about what you will wear. Don't care so much about how much you make or how much you don't make. Don't care so much, hear me now, about your children, about your singleness, about your spouse. Those things are all valuable, but don't you know your 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 not your earthly father, but your heavenly father knows exactly what you need. Jesus says, therefore, everybody in the world, Everybody in the world he goes whether they believe in jesus or not meaning you don't even have to believe in jesus Don't even waste your time coming to church on sunday You don't if you're gonna if you're gonna live that way If your functional faith is not that god isn't great and he's in control and that he loves you He goes everyone asks those things Everyone does and yet your father knows that you need them He knows what you need And so Jesus' response for us is if we're going to believe The issue is not that we have anxiety the issue is not that we worry. The issue is not that, that we, we, we're afraid. The issue is not that we manipulate. The, the, those things are not, those are all symptoms. But one of my first Bible teachers, Chris Mueller, told me, um, when it comes to understanding the Bible and people and counseling, this is what this is. This is how you can counsel yourselves and you can counsel others with the truth of God. It's preaching yourself. He said, you don't want to look at the smoke. The smoke is just an indicator that there's a fire somewhere. That's what our sins are. Our sins on the surface, they're just, they're just, they're just smoke. We got to get to the fire. And here's what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verse 28. Oh, you of little faith. He's saying at the core of it, you don't believe. You say you do, but you don't. I don't believe God. And that's like the worst thing a Christian can hear is that you're an unbeliever. Jesus says, you, you, you forgot what it means to be a Christian. Every single one of us in this room, when we became Christian, when we believed in Jesus for the first time, we said, God, all of me, yours. And the rest of our lives, we've been trying to live our lives by good works and good behavior and then holding on to what we have as opposed to the same thing that made us a Christian. Believing in God and trusting our whole life to his lordship is the same thing that grows us as Christians. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. He says, above all things, not food, not clothing, not shelter, very important things. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. God is great. You don't have to be in control. It's a faith thing. It's trusting in jesus. It's believing in jesus daily So often we think it's just a one-time deal We wake up in the morning and we believe in jesus christ and then the rest of our day and we go well the next day No, no, no Let's just be real here You wake up in the morning and every single thought in your mind rushes at your head What you did the night before what you have to do that day the meeting that you have to have the hard conversation That you have to have the things you don't want to do they're there It's in that moment that you have to say lord. You are great And therefore I don't have to be in control I don't have to be and guess what? It's not the next day. It's the next hour. God, you were great. I don't have to be in control. And the next hour. That's why I love Paul's picture about faith and faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus is not just one to, a one time act, but faith, he says, as we walk by faith and not by sight. Every step we take has to be a step of saying, God, I don't believe it, but help me with my unbelief. God, I don't feel it, but give me the faith. God, I know that you were great. Help me to live that way. For the next three weeks as we look at this, my goal as you walk away with anything is to understand that we, as Sinclair Ferguson says, we do way too much listening to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves. That you would take these truths about God, you would learn them, you'd memorize them, and you'd you'd embed them into your heart. When you find yourself getting angry, when you find yourself getting despair because you're going to lose something, when you find there's bitterness in your heart because someone's blocked you from something that you think, you can say, God, I know this is important, but you're more important. You are great. I don't have to be controlled. Lord, please help me. Please help me. And you counsel yourself with the scripture of God and the character of God. It's the only thing that can ever change us. As we look to Jesus himself, when he says seek the kingdom, he's not just saying seek the ways of the kingdom, but seek the king himself. Jesus is, is the ultimate picture of God's transcendent nature and his imminence, because we have God himself on a cross. God himself, all-powerful, all on a cross. If you ever doubted God's love for you, all you have to do is look at Jesus on the cross saying, I did it for you, I did it for you, I did it for you. Will bad things happen? Absolutely. God is God in control? Absolutely. Do we have to be in control? Absolutely not. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we we just confess that we are control freaks. And Lord, we confess that our biggest issue is belief. And so we do pray with the man in the gospel, Lord. We believe, but help us with our unbelief. God, help us in moments of weakness. Help us to have the strength by the spirit of Christ and the discipline, Lord, to remind ourselves of the truth of your character, and of your word. Remind us, God, how your transforming power is able to shape us in our sinful behavior and our negative emotions. Father, I pray that we'd be able to truly, not just let go, but Lord, hold firm to your word and hold firm to your ways, knowing completely and fully and wholly that you are holding on to us. God, we thank you that you don't leave us where we are, but you make us more and more after the image of your son, Jesus. And so, God, we pray for your spirit to continue to do the work that you've begun in us, not just individually, but collectively. But as we come to your table, Father, and remember your son, Jesus, Lord, that you would remind us of the renewal that happens weekly as we take communion. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.